This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Kalinko. Kalinko is a homeware company all the way from sunny Burma. They work with small family workshops all over the country to make gorgeous things for your home and are the perfect place for you to find something a little bit different, seriously special and wonderfully warming for your loved ones this Christmas. We've all had a bit of a weird year, so if you want to give a very grounding gift this Christmas, Kalinko can help. They work directly with the people who make their products, and every time you buy something from them, they reorder a replacement from the makers straight away. This keeps money flowing into the pockets that really need it, and talented people in skilled work. So head over to Kalinko.com to choose something that's been handmade very slowly from natural materials by somebody who really cares about each piece they make. Pick from gorgeous rattan trays, exquisite lacquer bowls, and stunning recycled glassware. There's something for everyone, from batty aunts to awkward in-laws, and each order comes with a bonus helping of the feel-good factor. And even better, they've given you a 15% off discount code to get you going. It's Desert Island Dishes, that's all one word, and the website is kalinko.com. That's K-A-L-I-N-K-O. Thank you, Kalinko. Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. So this week's episode was actually recorded last year in what could be described as a simpler time, <laughs> although we didn't know it then. And when I met Vicky, her book had just come out. And since then, it's gone on to win a James Beard Award, which is just incredible. Pasta Grannies is nothing short of a phenomenon. It's really no surprise that the world has fallen in love with the Italian nonnas making the most delicious pasta and I absolutely loved talking to Vicky and hearing the story of how the Pasta Grannies came to be. If you're listening and you haven't yet left a review, please do. It only takes a moment. I know that I'm always banging on about it, but it genuinely is very much appreciated. And please do know that I read them all. Lots of you left lovely ones after last week's episode, which really made my day. So thank you very much. I love bringing the podcast to you each week. And honestly, you leaving reviews and telling your friends about the podcast is what helps it to grow. So that's it for me waffling. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and here we go. My guest today is Vicky Benison. Vicky is the mastermind behind the viral sensation Pasta Grannies. Pasta Grannies started life as a YouTube channel five years ago and now has over 400,000 hugely engaged subscribers, 180,000 Instagram followers and a myriad of celebrity fans. She's traveled all over Italy filming the Pasta Grannies and every week she releases a video of a different granny cooking a different pasta recipe. It's a celebration of these women, and in her own words, it's a kind of Noah's Ark of handmade pasta techniques. She's just released the first Pasta Granny's cookbook in which she promises to unveil the secrets of Italy's best home cooks. Welcome, Vicky. Thank you for inviting me. So a little bit about you first, Vicky, because you've had an amazing career. You spent many years working in international development in places like Siberia, South Africa and Turkmenistan. And it was during this time that you started writing about your culinary adventures, wasn't it? Yes, it was the only way to stay sane. Okay. 
yeah, I would I would find myself in some foreign land that I'd had to look up on the map before getting on the plane, that kind of thing. And the first thing that I always like to do is go and visit a food market because that's a great way of finding out about local culture and and that kind of thing. So, and the next step was, of course, just to tell people about it. You can't keep all that kind of um, you know wonder and excitement to yourself. Um, so I started writing about it. My Christmas letters were famous. I and hope you still family... kept a copy. No, I haven't. But in fact, I have one or two girlfriends who have. Amazing. So, so that's great. Yeah. And so is that the form that the writing took? Did you have a blog? Were you writing letters? Sort of yes. what were you doing? You see, you see, I'm so old that I'm a pre-blogger. Okay. I mean, letters <laughs> were the only way to do it. So I tried blogging. I didn't really get on with it, in fact. Um, but then I started writing a book, actually. I sort of went from zero to, I know I'm going to write a book. Just (laughs) in your spare time because you weren't that busy doing international development. Well, as a lot of people know, I mean, uh, writing a book isn't a great way to earn money. It's because you do it because you absolutely love it and you have to. So I um, got involved with a little uh, series of culinary guides. And my first one was on Corfu, and then two on um, different regions of Spain. Amazing. Yes. Yeah, so I, was, I continued consulting whilst doing all that. It wasn't like I gave up. It was a two-handed thing. Yeah. I mean, why would you not do that? <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got into writing. And you've got some amazing stories from that time. I read that you went mushroom hunting with the Russian mafia, which I feel like you're going to have to give us the story behind that one. It's not that exciting. It's just, um... <laughs> you can make it up. <laughs> okay. One of the things about uh, working in that area of work is a woman on your own is unusual in those countries. And so they don't quite know what to do with you and they want to um, be hospitable and stuff like that. So you end up as an honorary bloke and you get to do things that, you know, local women never get involved with. Um, And so one example of that was, you know, men in leather uh, jackets and and, uh, looking slightly shifty turned up one Saturday and invited me um, to go mushroom hunting. I don't know if this was a sort of failed attempt at some other kind of business deal and they never (laughs) quite got to the bottom of it. But that, that was what happened. And we kind of went off to some dodgy area of town to get shooed up because we went off into the tiger forest. Oh, wow. I know, because where our base was a place called Kemerovo, and it's in between Moscow and Lake Baikal, only uh, only about three days west. <laughs> I've been there on the Trans-Siberian. Oh, yes, well, yeah. <laughs> yes, you've probably waved at the city. Um, you know, lovely people as ever, but its claim to fame is that you can mine every single element of the periodic table. Oh, wow. Um, so seriously polluted. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's just something to sort of bear in mind. I, I was at first impressed by that and then second of all, worried. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so the the tiger forest is massive. It'd be considerably less massive. You know, this is 20 years ago uh, now. And um, so we went off. We sort of found ourselves a larder car and then kind of set off into the forest. And then we sort of traipsed around and now it got colder and wetter and it was... <laughs> It was, wasn't snowing, but it was one of those chills that ends up right in the, your bones, you know. And we did end up with quite a lot of mushrooms, which I then threw away. Oh, because, <laughs> oh you didn't know. Because you didn't know where it, yeah. you know, it's like all this pollution that I kept sort of trying to sort of think of the periodic table. And what yeah, could possibly like be a uranium flavoured <laughs> exactly. mushroom is not that tempting. Um, yeah, but it was an adventure. Yeah, how amazing. Okay, we're going to have to pause there and talk yeah. about the first desert island dish. Okay. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Yes, Am I allowed to say bacon and eggs? Of course you are. Yes. <laughs> Was that a staple? 
because um, I was thinking about this because it's slightly difficult because I had a childhood in Africa. Okay, I was going to ask where yes, you grew yes. up. Yes, so I was, I was born in Mombasa and my dad worked in agricultural development. He supported farmers through training and research of crops. Um, so things like beans, he would sort of grow beans the old-fashioned way and then take them out to the surrounding villages in Kenya and test them. He'd give them to housewives and say, what do you think of these beans? And they, she, they would say, oh, you know, too mealy, the skin's too tough or whatever. And he would go back and try and get another bean that was tasted nice and was drought tolerant, Amazing. that kind of thing. Um, so that meant we lived on a farm. That meant um, we lived outside the nearest town, about half an hour's drive. And in Kenya, that was a little town called Machakos. We had to, and then in Botswana, it was the same thing. We moved from Kenya to Botswana. And we would have to do things like keep our own chickens and grow our own pigs and make our own bacon. So everything around breakfast, you know, you couldn't take for granted. You knew where it had come from. And breakfast for us as a family, um, we all sat down for breakfast. And I usually had been riding um, before breakfast. So I would get up at six and take the horse for a canter, come back for this amazing breakfast. Wow. And so whenever I sort of smell frying bacon, it takes me back to these really crisp mornings. Um, and yeah, so that's very evocative yeah. for me. Yeah. Oh, that's a lovely childhood memory. Mm. So I was going to ask you during your time working in international development, did you have a base or was home just wherever you were working at that moment? I've always had a flat in London. Okay. Yeah. Then I would sort of leave for several years at a time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you didn't have a pot plant waiting for you. <laughs> I, mean, I kill those anyway. Um, I'm not a great parent of plants. Yeah. So obviously I think uh, home is where my family is mostly. Um, I think um, there's a sort of cultural tribe of people who are slightly lost about where home is for them. And uh, I'm, I'm one of them. Yeah. But it doesn't always have to be a physical place, does it? No, it doesn't. No, it's, it's an interesting sort of feeling to have. I mean, you definitely still have a yearning probably for an Africa which doesn't exist because it's my childhood. I was very lucky. I think the kind of physical freedom that you get from that kind of experience. And it encourages you to be adventurous as an adult. I think that's why I ended up doing slightly mad things in Siberia and South Africa and, and things like that and Turkmenistan. And are you one of those people that can speak sort of dozens of no. languages? <laughs> I'm really bad at languages. Really? I, don't I, rely, believe you. I rely heavily on charades. Okay. <laughs> Sign language. Sign language, yeah. So it sounds like food has always played a very important role in your life. And as we've touched on, Pasta Granny's cookbook wasn't your first foray into the world of cookbooks. The series that you were talking about earlier was called A Taste of a Place. Yeah. where you really delved into different parts of the world and you got to explore their cuisine and recommend restaurants and sort of basically everything delicious, mm. which does really sound like a dream job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you were obviously doing that on the side, but were you sort of looking to the future, thinking maybe that's what you'd make your life about? I've always been interested in the intersection between sustainable development and the private sector and how could we get people to behave in a way that's more sustainable without being too worthy. You know, there's nothing duller than being worthy and hair shirt like about food and things and going on holiday. So 
that was the idea behind the culinary guides was just to sort of help people have fun and at the same time support local businesses. It was a very selfless act. <laughs> very. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not what I ever said in the, you know, the PR and the blur, but that was the kind of thinking behind it. And that tied in so well with what you'd been doing your yes, whole life. Yes, exactly. So it was kind of, instead of just being an advisor, it was actually an attempt to be a doer in that aspect. I didn't have one eye on the future. I didn't actually have a clear idea of that I am now going to go and work in food or food media. It, that just kind of evolved. Yeah. And the same with the writing, because you're such yes. a good writer. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I think writing is a kind of compulsion. You know, there's an urge to get it down. And then that's the 10%. And then the 90% is, as they say, just grafting away at it, um, yeah. getting your commas right and, and getting rid of superfluous adverbs and, and things like that. Um, yeah. I love writing, but again, the YouTube channel was actually a kind of massive detour. I picked up a camera because I just thought the pasta making is just so physical that is, uh, words aren't good enough. You have to have the visuals to go with it. And photography isn't good enough because you've kind of got to see the movement of it. And not having ever picked up a video camera before, <laughs> I thought, I know, I can do this. I, I, encouraged by my husband, who also works in TV, he sort of, you know, tutted and... Uh, side and said no this is how you do it you know <laughs> very patiently <laughs> yes. but yeah you're so right certain topics demand a certain medium and there is only so much even yes. like the most incredible yes. words can do you yes. have to portray yes. it and, in a and visual sense certainly the book i feel is, um, is complementary to the youtube i mean people still want recipes and it does give an opportunity for longer form storytelling so yeah. so um, that's why i was keen to do the book in terms of the channel, I mean, you start it, you, you, you've taken a film, where do you put it? Of course, YouTube. And then you find yourself with a, oh, I have to have an audience. Yeah. <laughs> hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> and then you, then you realize you kind of get gradually sucked into this thing of having to take it seriously, of having to do it every week, or at least as a, an, an interval that suits you. And so that's how the YouTube channel got started. I mean, from the sort of technical angle not just yeah. the kind of subject angle of goodness me these grandmothers you know they're the, the last people who are actually making pasta like this yeah, yeah. So we're going to come on to more about the channel in a moment but let's just talk about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook spaghetti bolognese mm, that's an excellent one <laughs> uh, yes even though that doesn't exist but i I'm, i have a still have a cookbook by a woman called katie stewart who um had a did a book called Cooking better all the time. Oh, <laughs> and I, and it's got my nine-year-old sort of handwriting saying, "I think this needs more <laughs> garlic or whatever it was." You know, Amazing notes at the age of nine being very sort of precocious, precocious in the, in the best possible <laughs> sense. Yes, yeah, spaghetti bolognese is an interesting one. Like, why has that become? such a sort of steadfast thing in our lives when actually it's so untraditional, isn't it? Slightly untraditional. I think it's one of those things that's just slightly more exotic um, and easier to do than than um, shepherd's pie. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. I love spaghetti bolognese, but but you don't really get spaghetti bolognese. They don't serve the bolognese with spaghetti, No, no, no. I mean, so in Italy, you don't... Uh, spaghetti is a dried pasta. And so dried pasta, you wouldn't so with something as rich and delicious as a ragu, you would yeah. um, do it, something else with it. So it's quite often served with, you know, vongole or something else. Ragu, in the way that we understand bolognese, is served with tagliatelle. 
and which is a flat egg-based pasta. So spaghetti is not an egg-based pasta. I knew you were the right person to ask <laughs> that question to. So say again that your writing is really beautiful. I definitely not exaggerating when I say that I got goosebumps when I was reading about how you first came across your first Italian nonna, Maria, and the meal she cooked for you at her house. You were at that point living in Italy in a little town called Chingoli. Chingoli, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Not going to lie, I had to Google that and get one of those pronunciation videos yes. to tell me how to say that. But what brought you to that place in particular, both, I guess, at that point in your life, deciding to settle there, but also what were your future plans? Mm. Yes, I had decided that I wanted a bigger kitchen. I'd had this flat in Chiswick for about 20 years. And the kitchen was a cupboard, literally. I mean, you could sort of stretch out your hands and, and you know, reach either wall. Yeah, <laughs> it was that small. Sounds like a London flat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I wanted to be a grown up. I wanted to have a proper kitchen. And um, the only way to do that without taking out a huge mortgage was to sort of move to Manchester or go, you know, south to the sunshine. I mean, you know, there was at that point, the pound was doing quite well. So it wasn't too much to think of, oh, let's do Mallorca or, or let's go to Italy or something. And I ended up in Italy with a schoolhouse. <laughs> oh, sounds idyllic. Mm. And so when all of this was happening, were you looking for a next project or what did you think you might sort of get your teeth into whilst you're out there? Yes, I'm afraid I just, were just going of, with the flow. I was just going with the flow. I just launched myself. I didn't think I would, I didn't sort of feel that I would have to live there forever. I just thought it was a next step to kind of free up my thinking, um, sort of look at things from a different perspective. I think I was, uh, I had assumed I would continue consulting along the way. That's, that was always going to be a sort of part-time thing. And then the, the spanner in the works of that was that I re-met my husband. <laughs> so he and I dated when we were 16, dated in th through, in fact, until our 20s. And, and then we'd split up. And 20 years down the line, uh, I, literally about two months after I bought the flat in the house in Italy, we re-met. Oh, my goodness. So that's... he inherited the house. <laughs> that's the most romantic story I've ever heard. Well, he must have been thrilled. So he, he moved he, there with you. He had to lie down. I mean, you know, a schoolhouse isn't a great looking building. Um, the advantage of it is that you can sort of knock down windows and walls and the authorities don't worry too much. But yeah, so he's he's been good sport. Oh, that's an amazing story. Okay, I have a feeling you're going to have a really delicious answer to the next question. So no pressure, Vicky. But the third desert island dish, what is the best dish you've ever eaten? So that has to be a meal with my father in Thailand on the coast. I was out there visiting my parents and my dad by this stage had gone off to Thailand. There was this, it's now an oil refinery. <laughs> Unfortunately, otherwise I'd direct you all there. Yeah. But um, it was a kind of town called Satterheap or near there. It was right. It was so remote. You know, we were the only Europeans there. And there was this tiny rickety pier. And the very end of it was this restaurant. And the kitchen for this restaurant was on the beach. It was just sort of open end thing. And the waiters had bicycles, which would bike out the meals once they'd been ordered. And oh, my goodness. And so we had this wonderful lunch over over the water. Um, you know, it was actually a hot and sour crab soup that, that absolutely sticks in my memory with all that kind of lemongrass and mm. heat. And, mm. So that's that's what I remember from that day was just everything about it. It's yeah. just mm. oh, almost in a way 
kind of good that it isn't still there because you can't recreate no, it. So it's just going to stay, yeah, it's just going to yes. stay in your yes. memory, which yeah. is really nice. Mm. So let's talk about how Pasta Grannies came about because it all sort of started due to a conversation with what you describe as a friendly manager of your local supermarket. Yes, Alessandro. <laughs> yeah, tell us a bit about that. <laughs> He likes to practice his English and I like to practice my very bad Italian. Um, so we were having a natter about pasta making and I was trying to find women to make pasta or at least tell me about pasta. And so he said, oh, you know, I've got my grandmother. The day dawned when all of them came for lunch, except they were cooking lunch for us. I mean, that's a good arrangement. That's a very good arrangement. <laughs> yeah. Um, Maria came and, and made us all ravioli and it was a great experience. And that was the start of this idea of celebrating older women through looking at it as a lens, if you like, the, the, of pasta making. Women above 70 are the last women that actually had to make pasta if they wanted to eat. For everyone that's younger, it's a choice. And for most women, like everywhere else in Europe and the world, I mean, most women have to go out to work. You know, they're the chauffeurs for their kids. They rely heavily on their mother or their grandmother to make them meals. And everybody still thinks, oh, you know, Nonna is our, the best cook. You know, what Nonna is going to be cooking in 20 years time, it's actually going to be very different from what Nonna is cooking now. I and I thought, well, let's make a record of it. Um, so that's how the channel got started. I love that. So it sort of came out of a real need to preserve these recipes and the techniques, which we yes. don't want to lose, which we're in danger of. Yes, of I'm Pasta making isn't actually going to be extinct in, in Italy. Of course not. I mean, it's, it's just that the, it's becoming professionalized. It's every, you know, there are little pasta shops in every village and every town. It will look very different. It will look different. So I think, you know, the pasta will exist, but they'll be using extruders and the kind of variations that you get will probably be lost. That kind of, there's a, the infinite numbers of variations that, I mean, I, I never think, oh, tagliatelle again. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah I've never had that thought. <laughs> no, never, because it's like there's always going to be some difference, some nuance um, and a different story to tell as well, because these women all have stories to tell. Yeah, you're so right. Obviously, I hope people are still eating pasta in 50 or 100 years, but, uh, yeah. but you're right that all the sort of the family recipes, there's no way that they're going to be preserved unless people like you do start writing them down. And yes. we are living in such a different way to the previous generations. Yes. So I can't even imagine what future generations, how mm. they're going to be living. Exactly. So one mustn't romanticize poverty. I know. No. <laughs> but, uh, I think there are still lessons to be learned about frugality and really appreciating the dishes that you make and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And the sort of bringing together of the family. Yeah. Which, Very important. Yeah. Mm. I also really like the way Pasta Grannies is shining a light on these women. And it does feel like such a celebration of both food, but also women. And you, you describe how these women are often found behind the scenes. So it does feel really special to celebrate them. Yes, I felt that was important. I mean, I think, I guess, another motivation for Pasta Grannies was in terms of, if you look at the sort of food media landscape, I felt that there was a space for older women. Yeah. Um, and that that we often hear about grandmothers and mothers being a source of inspiration, but we never see them. I don't need to be in front of camera. I just wanted to be absolutely about those women and putting them center stage and celebrating them. So that's <laughs> 200 women later. Has there ever been a pastor grandpa? Yeah. Yes, we've had a couple. Oh, I haven't seen and I got one you know, somewhere in, in Umbria that's waiting to be filmed. Oh. Um, yeah, do try. It's not that I'm, you know, no. it's not a no guy situation. No, pasta here. grandpas just, would be great. 
definitely. It's just that the nature of pasta making is that traditionally it was women's work. So yeah. what we find is it's, if it's pasta grandpas, it's because they've taken it up uh, late in life. If they've been widowed or it's a sort of a retirement hobby, something like that. Yeah. Or they've come at it. Um, Roberto has a love of herbs. Okay. So he's kind of found his route into pasta making through that. Amazing. So, yeah. Oh, there are just so many stories to tell, aren't there? Let's pause there and talk about a very important question. It's the fourth desert island dish. Vicky, what is your favorite sandwich? But this is a bit dull, really. It's oh. just, it's just <laughs> there is no dull grill- sandwich. Oh, okay. No dull sandwich. I'm, I, I think it's probably grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good sandwich. Nothing yeah. dull about that. Yeah. No, no, no. I, yeah. I, it's kind of like hugely indulgent and yeah. Talk me through it. How are you making it yourself? Have you found a really good one? So it reminds me of actually escaping from boarding school. Okay. (laughs) Um, That's why it tastes so good. It does. It really does. It's just that kind of, oh, I've I've got out of there. That kind of feeling. I was a great runner away. Yeah. (laughs) Well, for cheese sandwiches. Cheese sandwiches. Um, My best friend, Jo, I had a guardian and uh, she was one of those rare women that allowed you to just kind of slump in front of the television which we weren't allowed to watch at school. And she would make us these these grilled cheese sandwiches and they were just heaven. So good, <laughs> so good. So um, for me, I, I'm the usual thing. I mean, a, a decent bloomer or maybe a sort of close crumb sourdough of some kind. And it's got to be a mixture of cheeses and pickles on the side rather than in. I don't want it kind of interfering with the flavor actually in the sandwich. Yeah, I knew there was more to this grilled cheese sandwich than you were letting on. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's it really. Well, yeah, that sounds excellent. So you filmed the first Nonna Maria when she came to your house to yes. cook pasta. Mm. And I wondered when you filmed her, yeah. what was her reaction? Was she completely open to it? Was she surprised? You know, what were her well, thoughts? Well, with her, I didn't actually film her. We did took photographs. So it was oh, kind okay. of an evolution of it. Um, and she was... The important thing about Pasta Grannies is we use small cameras. So it does feel like they're just having photographs um, taken. So I don't... Um, I've tried things like these mics that we're using and they kind of freak our women out. So yeah. we kind of keep everything minimal and small. And so it's more like a conversation, like what we're doing now. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of relaxes them because it's very important that they have fun with the experience as well. Yeah. And you don't want them to clam up. No, like they're sort of no, they're like rage. a rabbit in front yeah. of headlights kind of thing. <laughs> so that's no good at all. No. Well, yeah, because they do always seem very relaxed and they could all be like the next Jamie Oliver. So that, that's interesting because, yeah, I was wondering how you did that. Yes. And um, it's important to point out that I have a granny finder. Okay. <laughs> that's the best job title in the world. I know. Uh, it's, 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 uh, she's very good at it, actually. I mean, you, uh, her name is Livia de Giovanni and she lives in Faenza, which is in Emilia Romagna. So it's her job to get them to say yes, because no one ever sort of says, oh, it's me. I have to be in front of camera. I mean, nobody. No, it's especially all... grannies. Yeah. Yeah. And why would they? You know, it's, it's got, they've got nothing to prove. Yeah. So it's a question of finding friends and friends of friends who have, you know, an aunt or a mother or a grandmother. And if that fails, you know, it's random people on in hotels, on station platforms or whatever it is. And then um, have you got a granny and yeah, does she make much. really good pasta? <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Um, and also funny little organizations called Pro Loco, which are, um, help promote local regions oh, um, great. Yeah, around Italy. So we kind of work through them a lot. They're very helpful. And I also have this um, very handsome, charming cameraman who is the granny's love. Oh, well, that's very useful. <laughs> <laughs> He's very good at kind of, oh, 
laughs again, but in, not in a kind of bossy way. He just says, he kind of purrs at them and they all go, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, I have my secret weapons, you know, that, that sort of um, make them relaxed and, and think they're having fun. Amazing. So, you know. and, and you say it was your TV producer husband that said, why don't you start putting these yes. on YouTube? Yes. Did that feel really natural to you? Sort of, are you au fait with the world of social media or was no, that all quite daunting? <laughs> no, that's all been a late life uh, learning. Okay. <laughs> it does still feel like a foreign language, all, this, all these different social media yeah, things. Um, it is a whole And I, I don't know if I'm, I'm I think I'm sort of you know, adequate. I also, I'm lucky enough, my husband's kids are also in, t- in telly, so they also um, help out. I've kept it in the family. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the evil stepmother. Kind of gets, you <laughs> help me. You cannot possibly be the evil stepmother when no. you're making pasta grannies. <laughs> no. no, they're wonderful. No, this yeah. probably isn't a question that normal people would ask you, but have you ever been to a granny's house and had her cook for you and it's just not been very good? You don't have to tell us who she is, but presumably no, not did, all I, Italian no, nonas. I mean, I, we'd asked for this. Um, it was once, and it wasn't actually pasta. It was, wasn't that it was not very good. It's, it was an authentic recreation of something traditional, which just didn't taste very nice because it's chestnut polenta. Chestnut flour polenta is like wallpaper paste, and it tastes sweet and slightly smoky. And that is what people had to live on. I mean, so, and it's just not very nice. Yes, yeah, so it wasn't. That she was a bad cook or anything. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing that they served with it was reconstituted salted bones, like pig's trotters that kind of got boiled up. And that is really what, you know, in the poor <laughs> regions of, is it Gaffaniana of uh, Tuscany? That's what they kind of traditionally ate. And okay. We all, we're all kind of going gulp. Thank God we don't have to. Do this. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's important yeah. to sort of have a dose of that and realize how yes. lucky. You know, it's, it's not all, uh, you know, very romantic stuff. And I think sometimes cucina povera is, is misused. Some, it's actually sometimes just cucina rustica. You know, it's actually country cooking that we're filming rather than the food of the poor because the really poor had very little to eat. Mm. And that's getting a bit serious about master grannies. But it's, yeah. it's, um, no, but it's important mm. to highlight those issues because, yeah, mm. it is easy just to romanticize it. Yes, I think there are lots of myths that aren't necessarily grounded in the reality of people's lives 100 years ago. Mm. So it's interesting to do that. And we always eat what we're given. And that's also very important, which is why I'm spherical. Um, <laughs> You're not at all. <laughs> well, you know, at least. That's the best part of the job. <laughs> we pass the three or four times a day when we're filming because... Like, Vicky, if you time. ever need someone to come and take <laughs> okay, that burden off wrong. you, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I really love about your story is that you say for the first three years, no one was really watching Pasta Grannies and it was in the Christmas of 2017. You had 5,000 subscribers. That seemed like loads because it is 5,000 yes. people. And so I wondered up until then, was it really just a passion project? And would you have just carried, you would have carried on even if that number hadn't grown? Yes, I would have carried on. It's a passion project. It still is. And I was thrilled with the 5,000. And then it started to be picked up by celebrities and Facebook news channels. Because I remember coming across it that summer, so six months later, yeah. and you were already up to 300,000. Yes. So then then that, uh, I think one of the videos, I think it was now this or Insider, that one of them's had now 60 million views <gasps> on Pastor Oh, I think Brandy. that's the bit like the Business Insider. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, when they asked me to do this, why is a business magazine wanting to learn about Pastor Grannies? This is really strange. So I kind of 
did a quick video thing to camera <laughs> and sent it off and thought no more about it. And then suddenly my <laughs> my numbers started going oh, kind of like this, kind of up and up and up. And I'm going, is there something wrong with YouTube? Am I being attacked by some kind of bot? You it's know? a cyber attack. <laughs> it's a cyber attack. I'm getting all these numbers, you know. And um, so that changed the algorithm and I became a YouTuber on the rise or something oh, like right. that. And so it just became a snowball effect. I, I just got, uh, I, um, Pastor Granny's just got more and more popular. So now we're at, you know, 417,000 um, subscribers. YouTube recently sent out a team to film us, the yeah. team film, which is wow. quite good fun. It was like 20 of them. And it's like, oh my word. And, and it was really good <laughs> you fun. You and your iPhone. Yeah, recording. me and my iPhone. Yes. <laughs> everybody, all the, we were on this, this ferry um, and uh, all the Italians thought I was a soap star. <laughs> oh my God, I hope you milked that. Um, Lots of hair well, flicking. No, <laughs> no, actually, the captain did slow the boat down so we could look at these dolphins. That's, uh, I thought I could be a diva. Oh I could do God. this every day. Yeah, so that's like the definition of a VIP, isn't yeah, it? But, so that must have been really exciting. But also, did it bring any other feelings? Like, did it make you feel daunted or I don't know that's suddenly so many eyes looking at what you're doing yes I suppose I'm kind of heads down I still have to put one up every week um, yeah I'm particularly concerned about making sure my grandmothers aren't exploited um, that they continue to have any media that you know is always positive and respectful of them so that's something I keep and keep in mind yeah um, because you know my channel is dead without them Although at the same time, on the plus side, it's, it's like uh, it becomes easier to explain to people what we want to do and yeah. things. I'm not just this, this mad British woman going around Italy. You know, it's like, ah, oh, Pastor Grannies, we understand that. Yeah, you've got the numbers to back yes, it up. that's right. Yeah. So um, it's become really busy. <laughs> and, you know, this, uh, a book has been written and now there's all the sort of PR that goes with it and, and stuff. So It's so exciting. Yes, yeah. I think I know the answer to this next question, but it's the fifth desert island dish and it's the dish you eat the most often. It's not pasta. Oh, <laughs> but you eat pasta four times I'd, a day. Uh, yeah, only when filming. And okay. my, my husband goes, but we never eat pasta anymore because <laughs> it was where we get home. I'm like, no more pasta. Um, I love pasta. So I guess the dish that uh, we eat quite a lot of is actually a variation on cauliflower fagada, which is a Mallorcan dish and it's a kind of ca uh, cauliflower braise. Originally, it has things like sobrasada, which is a kind of squishy paprika um, sausage and blood sausage and, and things like that. And, and pork. it's really quite porky, but it's kind of changed over the years in, in my kitchen. And it's now more, you know, chorizo and, and olives. And it's just still a, a cauliflower braise, which, you know, is, is delicious. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. Well, so were you you um, grill off the cauliflower first? Good. In fact, um, what I do is I make um, a tomato sauce mm -hmm. and then I sort of grill or, or crumble up the sausages separately. So I don't get sort of still got a bit of um, texture as you add it back into the yeah. tomato sauce. And then you just simmer off. You, you pretty much steam the cauliflower. You put the lid on it because it's drowned cauliflower. So you put okay. the lid on and then leave it for 10 minutes. Take the lid off and it's done. Oh, that sounds Sprinkle amazing. with whatever herbs you've got. And the original dish says pine nuts and raisins as well, if you fancy that. Um, Yum. That sounds really good. A yeah. good antidote to pasta that yes. sounds sort of light <laughs> and fresh. Okay, so the book is basically five years worth of collecting these amazing recipes. Yeah. And it seems like such a natural 
step. I know you've said several times that you didn't have sort of a plan and, you know, you very much go with the flow. But when you started Pasta Granny's, was it in your mind that a book would be a lovely thing to make? <laughs> well, well, having got the YouTube channel, I then realized that you only um, you need about, you know, 10,000 people to um, persuade a publishers that, you know, you're you're serious. <laughs> So, yes, I had to kind of keep going. Thinking, yeah. Oh, yeah, one day I'll get there. <laughs> so I, in the beginning, I would sort of, you know, every subscriber was monitored. <laughs> but now uh, I always wanted to write the book. I think probably have to be a second volume as well because people yeah. keep saying, oh, is this recipe in it? It's like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because quite often when you're watching the videos, they don't cook with exact recipes because that's not the way that they cook. No. So quite a lot of your time must have been spent actually, you know, pulling a recipe out of what they'd created. Yes. And, and, put and I think that. and I think uh, the positive message from that is if if you find that you have to make a variation, don't panic. Yeah. Because that's what most cooking is about. I mean, so we spend a lot of time at the beginning of the book kind of going through how to make pasta if that's what you want to do. Um, and it is good fun to do. And it's, I think, lends itself to group activity. If there are several of you wanting to do a pasta, then don't invite people around for dinner and cook it for them. Get them to yeah. help you do it. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely the way to do it. Definitely the way to do it. And of course, you can just swap out any of these recipes for a, for a dried pasta if you want. Yeah. Um, so, and there are, what we try to do with the book is actually sort of have a variety. So different levels of difficulty several which are easy, lots which are easy, a mixture of veggie and you know, with meat and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that is one of the really fun things about watching the grannies in action is it's, it's also intuitive. And so, yeah, of course, it's lovely to have the recipe in the book. Yeah. But it's sort of understanding that cooking is meant to be fun and, yes. you know, you can just kind of make it up as you go along and switch things yes. out and yes. as so, you get more confident. <laughs> And then you make it your own and it's no longer what. Yeah. But, but don't get <laughs> And then you can't get cross up. with them if no, it doesn't work. No, I never, I never sort of give rules. I'm, there are lots of official versions of things. Then you find that everybody else, you know, no one takes any notice. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so I read that you said that you believe the reason for the success is to do with the grannies yes. themselves. They're the yes. key and that the food is sort of secondary. But do you think it's also due to the fact that it's pasta and that people just love Italian food and pasta in particular. It's sort of a perfect storm because who doesn't yes. love grannies and pasta? I, I think we're at peak pasta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did, did I read that spicy grannies might be on the card? Oh, I'd love to do that. Well, I mean, I, you know, that would that would take kind of some degree of organisation to sort of get out to Southeast Asia or yeah. somewhere. Um, that would be wonderful. I mean, it would be great to sort of visit other Italian communities or just even other parts of Europe which have um, pasta uh, recipes and, and traditions. So that yeah. would be fun. I mean, it's going to keep me going until my, you know, uh, dotage. <laughs> yeah, I think so. What a dream. Right. Well, on to the sixth desert island dish. And that's your go-to dinner party dish. Yeah, I don't really do dinner parties. Okay. Um, I, uh, having a house in Italy means that we have friends to stay. So that's for several days. And I quite often there's a vegetarian amongst them. And so... I think my go-to dish is one by Deborah Madison mm -hmm. from her Greens cookbook. And it's a roulade. You use a souffle um, base for the roulade and you wrap it around. I use ricotta and lots of herbs, and a few chives and 
tomatoes and it looks spectacular. Yeah. Um, it looks like you've made the effort for the vegetarian and it's delicious as well. So nobody notices. A delicious savoury ruler. That yeah, sounds so it's fantastic. Nice. Yeah. yeah. On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So we ask everyone to name their favourite cookbook. Nowadays, I buy cookery books for different set of reasons. It's like, oh, you know, what should... What fermentation. Are they up to? Yeah, yeah, what are they up to? <laughs> that, but um, I'm less worried about that, but I'm intrigued by fermentation. So, you know, how are people talking about it? So I don't sort of actually uh, set out to make the recipes. I just kind of read what people are doing mm. and how they write about it. So slightly different approach to yeah. every book. I think Jane Grigson is one that all of her books, particularly vegetables. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, when I was young in my 20s and sort of cooking for myself for the first time, those were she was one of the people that you sort of look to because she has a great warmth in her writing, which was encouraging. Yeah, um, yeah her writing's lovely. And I can't think of uh, loads, loads, loads. Alistair Little in the 90s. Um, I loved his books. Um, so Alistair, if you're still out there. Yeah, I haven't heard him <laughs> talked about for ages, but yeah, his books were great. Yes. <laughs> right, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Oh, this is so difficult. Yeah. Yes, you I'm, can have several courses. Several courses. I mean, I'm very into antipasti and anything that's kind of involves large hunks of cheeses and smoked fish and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Sort of bitty eating. Yum. Um, so that would have to be uh, included. I think my secret crush on the pasta in the pasta book is the, I'm not looking over here, it's Cornelia's Panzotti. It's from Liguria. And it's these little tubby ravioli and it's stuffed with foraged herbs. So they have a slight bitterness and a little bit of Parmigiano goes in the middle. And then you have this walnut salsa, which goes with them, which is amazing. So if it was on my own, I would have that, followed by raspberry sorbet. Very good. Um, what would you have if you weren't on your own? Oh, well, Billy was saying, oh, I want your um, asparagus lasagna. So oh. I, <laughs> I mean, this is a feast, so we can ha- you can have so it you all. You can have that as well. Yeah. Billy was saying, please, please. It's like it's not in the book. You can't have it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, Vicky Benison, those were your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Lots to digest from that one. <laughs> That's a terrible foodie pun, but um, seriously, so many delicious dishes talked about there. And I hope everyone knows that they never have to apologize for a toasted cheese sandwich. It's a sandwich of champions in my eyes. Don't forget to go to the website desertislanddishes.co for the full list of episodes, plus lots of recipes, and you can sign up for the newsletter. Come and say hi on Instagram at desertislanddishes. Thank you again so much for listening. And thank you to our sponsor, Kalinko. I'll see you next week. Bye.